Hello and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room podcast, episode 22. I'm Rose Cooper and I'm one very embarrassed Australian. It's hard to know where to start. Let's just say our government did it again. This time it isn't just about abhorrent behaviours of our parliamentarians. It's about, ironically, an education program that was released in recent days about consent. Apparently our government threw a fuck ton of money at this program which is under the guise or the banner of a website called The Good Society. Anybody else cringe when they hear that this is called The Good Society? Are you having nightmares (laughs) about some kind of far-right religious fucking cult? I am. Anyway, the government threw a fuck ton of money at this program And then someone had a look at it and spotted one of the videos from the section of the website, which was meant for years 10 to 12. I'm talking about 15 to 16, 17 and 18 year old young adults. And before you could say the words hideously damaging scenarios, the video went viral. It caused such universal international outrage that they took the offending video down. But if you Google the words milkshake consent video, I kid you not, you will find it. And um, I can get embarrassed all over again. In the meantime, just to give you an idea of it, if you haven't seen the video, let's just listen to a soundbite from another video, which is still on the site, because for some unknown reason, there hasn't been the same level of outrage about it, and it hasn't yet been taken down. Copper, listen. Stop. Ask. Listen. To be human is to want many things. Food. Money. Power. Wait, did he just say power? And love. But we can't simply take what we want from another person. Consider this taco. What? This taco has no opinion about whether or not you eat it. It was not secretly hoping to go to university. Or was it? No, it wasn't. Was that meant to be funny? Because a taco is an object. A person is a person. Every person has their own rich inner world filled with thoughts, feelings, hopes and dreams. About money and power, apparently. And many of these will be different to yours. I really want Henry to take me to the dance. I really want Demelza's brother to take me to the dance. Oh dear, that means conflict. Apparently, I have a different interpretation of the word conflict. Do you know what the other person wants? Do they know what they want? Do they know what you want? Do you even know what you want? Do I really want Henry to take me to the dance? Or do I just want to feel popular and special? Do I want Demelza's brother to ask me to the dance? Or do I really want to head to the big city and live my dream of becoming a lifestyle and fitness model? 
Ah, self-reflection. Oh my god. Always full of surprises. Hi there, kids. This is Rose from the Fair to Middling Society. Can you say condescending? So much about that soundbite that pissed me off. So little time. So all this kerfuffle about these videos happened in the last week, around about the same time that I found my next guest. Cheryl M. Bradshaw is a psychotherapist and author, and I found her via her TEDx talk, which was hosted by Sarah at Comprehensive Consent. I interviewed Sarah a couple of podcasts ago about educating kids about consent. Oh my God, the irony. Anyway, (laughs) after watching the TED Talk, I was super excited to talk to her about the TED Talk and about the book entitled Real Talk About Sex and Consent. This talk and this book takes the consent conversation to areas that have been somewhat neglected to a certain degree because respectability politics has always got us walking on eggshells and grasping and gasping and blushing when we have these conversations or worse looking for easy metaphors like milkshakes and hiring adults to pretend that they're children to get a message across to young adults. Oh, fucking so angry. Anyway, I had no intention really of talking about the milkshake video during this podcast, but it came up during my chats with Cheryl while we were talking about getting this uh, interview happening and turns out we couldn't not talk about it. And the fact that it did cause such controversy was kind of a good thing in the end because it did highlight just how absurd, the absurd lengths we go to to uh, soften the blow and trivialise what is a very, very serious conversation that we should always be super direct about. And when you're talking about consent, it's usually because you're also talking about the fact that there's a rape culture out there and the people that these videos are directed at are the highest demographic represented in the assault statistics, the victims and the perpetrators. So we need to talk about mental health. We need to talk about trauma. We need to talk about really cool stuff like neuroscience. Oh my God, this <laughs> this podcast was catnip for me because we do talk about how the brain works and oh my god it's so fascinating. Cheryl said she's going to come back and um, find time to have a chat to us about self-esteem stuff like we end up talking for just over an hour and usually when I get guests on we end up talking at least two or three hours because you know these conversations are complex and interesting and they go in all different directions but Cheryl's a new mum with a nine-month-old daughter and she's over in Canada so we had to coordinate not just time zones but also find a window in the conversation for when her daughter was asleep so we were talking uh, around about 10 30 um, Cheryl's time and I was mindful not dragging it out so we did get to just over an hour of chat I haven't really edited it hardly at all because there's so much stuff in there I advise you to really sort of get yourself into the zone (laughs) for listening um, because we do cover some interesting areas in this 
endlessly complex, fascinating and vital conversation. So here we go. Here's me and Cheryl. What did you make of it? Like being in the consent biz, having released a book, put your heart and soul and everything into it, and then you see a national curriculum or a suggestion for a national curriculum on consent look like that. Like, yeah. How how, how do you feel? (laughs) Do you feel like just killing people? It's it's tough because you know, as and this might be the therapist side of me coming up, but it's the you know it's tough because on one hand, I I can have a bit of empathy I think for for someone who got really I think misguided somewhere along the way. Like we do know that there's this cup of tea video out there, right? That's super popular. Everyone shares it. Everyone loves it. It went viral. It's a whole thing. So I get how someone maybe had this idea of trying to be, you know, some someone that could be relatable with this approach with the milkshake thing. But, you know, what surprises me, I think, you know, after that, after we make room for some empathy, how someone maybe started in, in a place and then kind of got lost in it, um, is that it doesn't seem like anyone reviewed it. Did huh. they show it to any teams? Did they show it to any experts? Did they did they check with anyone? Cause I haven't seen, I've read a couple news articles on it yeah. and tried to keep up with what's going on. And I haven't seen anyone step forward mm. and say, you know, this is, you know, something I looked at and these were the reasons we thought it was okay. Like no one has stepped forward. No one's taken any kind of accountability. They haven't pointed really to anyone and said, this is who we consulted. So that's, I think what really concerns me is no one looked at it and it's such an important topic Mm. you think some eyeballs would be on it when Mm. literally I think the whole nation is looking Mm. right now you'd think that they'd you know really have taken some more care before just sort of throwing out something that that really was so far off base I, I I haven't done a really thorough investigation of who they vetted in order to take these people on board, the mm. the production company that they got, they threw a lot of money at it. Um, mm. And just all of the levels, like the, the sort of weird nostalgic kind of setting they've put it in and the fact that they're getting the female character to be the aggressor mm. and I suppose in some way that's to make young males look at that and feel more empathy than they would if they were seeing the roles reversed. I don't know that I, <laughs> that's my suspicion to you again, that sort of, mm. again, that little bit of empathy shows up and say, I think that's what they were going for. And it is yeah. in some ways an okay strategy. Um, you know, if it's, I think mixed in a bunch of other videos and, you know, I will be honest, I didn't get into every single one. No. You know, I had a baby at home, um, but I did see part of the taco video too. And Yeah. Um, that yeah. One was also... just, just even food analogies, why they feel like they have to go that far away yeah, from the I, I think from it was this topic. cup of tea video that really got everyone excited and I think that's what they must have had. That's, that's the only explanation I can come up with is that they thought that was the route that was popular, so they went with it, it rather feels... than... It feels yeah. from a from a just a person who lives in this country, <laughs> um, yeah. and who is, uh, you know, a human, and and all that. It just seems like it was like an alien landed and and took into account what humans do and made their own 
analogy from that. It, it seems so divorced from any sense of common sense. And then I don't know about the, the uh, video you saw, but the first time I saw it, it ended with um, the 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 black guy actually doing busting out and doing a dance, like they were showing an outtake to kind of make oh, it more yeah, no, make make it part. more relatable or something. I, I, we're we're hip and we've got a we've got a guy doing <laughs> doing all the all the moves and 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 I was like, so that's their kind of nod to. This is what makes us now. This is what makes us relevant and relatable. We know what you kids are into. And I was like, so cringy. I was just, yeah. yeah. It really, yeah, it really feels like like someone not of the generation was trying to pretend they were of the generation and really didn't do it right. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, like it seems like no teens were consulted. And, you know, also coming from some mental health advocacy work that I do, um, uh, side of the consent work that I do, which is, you know, some of the youth boards I sat on when I was still youth and things like that. One of the, the big um, thoughts and, and complaints is there's so many teen focused programs or marketing or whatever that it's like a bunch of adults just sit around a room and say, you know, you know what those youths would really like, yeah. you know what <laughs> we should do for those teens. And it's like, what? not bring them into the conversation they're hungry for it this is where it started with you know um chanel is you know as far as i've been able to track the whole thing is she started bringing this up and Mm. she's still taking the helm of it she's still doing a lot of media work on it and youth are sort of popping up all over with different um you know initiatives that they're wanting to start and be a part of like they want to be involved let them be involved it's just so strange when the adults put on their big adult hats and say, you know, we'll handle this, kids, don't worry. It's yeah. like, okay. Well, while I was, <laughs> um, while I was uh, waiting for you to settle your baby before the interview, I, had a, I hopped online and had a look at your consent videos on YouTube and all that sort of uh, thing. And the, the uh, TED Talk or the TEDx talk that, talk that you gave both use the same analogy, which is the house or metaphor, which is the house in regards to the way the brain works when it's um, uh, given a sense of safety or lack thereof and and how that works. And I remember when I was in high school, we had really bad sex education around about the age of puberty. But then um, when I was in year 10, well, the year I turned 16, we then had a science teacher run us through reproduction like it was a science topic and I thought mm. that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's science. And um, talk. Uh, we didn't, it wasn't about um, anything beyond uh, the biology but it was also about naming certain body parts and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, it was about reproduction. I think the original reason why schools took up the gauntlet of teaching kids about sex is about pregnancy. And now that we're asking schools to talk about psychology and emotions and all this sort of stuff because of what's going on in colleges and high schools and what what went on when I was a young person in infant school and primary school and high school, I had harassment and molestation and this is not new why are people sort of 
in your opinion, why are people still wanting to hold a milkshake in a video about sex and consent? Like where where are you with that when you're when you're talking to your peers? So, you know, it's one of the things I think I keep coming back to in my head, it, it, it comes back a little bit, I think, to statistics. One of the most recent studies that just came out is coming back with one in three. I sometimes hypothesize from what I've, you know, heard in people and clients and even friends and family that it's probably one in two, mm. um, at least, if not, you know, for including sexual harassment, I would say everyone. Yeah. Um you know, especially women and, you know, minorities and minority LGBT groups as well. Um, Assuming that many people probably have had personal experience with it and especially older generations potentially not feeling they're able to speak about it um, or get help about it and it's even more taboo, that then involves the psychological process of repressing. Mm. right? If we can't deal with it, if we can't cope with it, if we can't process it, if it's not okay to talk about, we then repress instead. And Mm. so then if we're presented with this task of having to address it, if we have to use the trigger words or the trigger images or the trigger sort of topics, it sometimes will bring up something in us. So I'm imagining an older generation where, you know, somebody in that room had something happen to them. Mm. How far along were they in their own processing of it? How much did that keep them from, you know, if their way of coping was to protect, ignore, and pretend it didn't happen? Were they maybe feeling like they were protecting a room of young people from feeling what they were feeling as they were trying to come up with this curriculum? That's sort of what I hope in my brain, Mm -hmm. you know, in in seeing the best of the world and and the best of people while still keeping psychology at the forefront is... Mm -hmm. You know, I I really do have a perspective. The world is that people are doing the best that they know how to do. Yeah. And a lot of times, though, that is underneath lots and lots of layers of psychology, of um, different sort of protectors and responses and, and ways we've coped with our world that we end up projecting, whether we're aware of it or not, on everyone else. Mm. So, you know, if if that was a room full of, of older folks who didn't think it was okay to talk about sex, sexuality, consent, and especially sexual assaults, that probably trickled out in the material they put forward to young people who are coming from a very different space of the internet is everywhere. Mm. This information is everywhere. You know, porn is everywhere. Mm. This isn't news to them. And Mm. so for those two different views to clash in that moment, um, it really highlighted, I think, where potentially another generation um, wasn't prepared and wasn't ready to deliver what needed to be delivered in this moment. It's scary. I don't know how you feel, but it scares me. I sometimes get quite overwhelmed with why we can't see what needs to be said, why we can't say it. And it is hard to think, you know, I think what scares me is how, a lot of the people I think that are attracted to positions of power are often coming from a space where they didn't feel powerful in their childhoods, especially. Yeah. Which then tends to leave often government and, and positions of power. So then these are people who are deciding curriculum, who are deciding what goes forward and what doesn't. And 
And again, when you sort of add on top of that, the patriarchy history of everything, it makes it so hard for folks who really want to see a difference and make a difference and do the right thing. It makes it so hard to amplify those voices. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've worked at trying to get my, you know, I have my book, you know, my yes. book, you've seen it around, right? Real talk about sex and consent. Yeah. I ended up writing it as a way to skip the line of curriculum to get it directly into people's homes if I couldn't mm. get it into people's schools. Um, but largely because the the red tape to get into curriculum is outrageous. Mm. And as you can see, what funnels out the other side of all these, you know, folks with concerns of parents could be mad at us and all these fears around what what is going to happen if we say too much you can see what comes out the other side is things like these milkshake videos and instead um, it makes I think people who are progressive and bringing positive messages um, it makes it so hard for those voices to be amplified so Mm. that's what sort of scares me around trying to get change to happen is it's not just about getting consent curriculum fast forward past three right now it's also about dismantling, I think, ideals and idealisms around power structures and mm. people in charge. And it's it's way bigger than it seems. And that sometimes is disheartening. Yeah. As you say, the whole power structure, the ways in which people aren't even aware that they are being manipulated and coerced and stuff. We talk about consent a lot in regards to sexual assault. And as you said, the statistics seem mm-hmm. to be one in three. And during this uh, awareness raising month, I thought, well, um, I just put out a reel on Instagram just sort of listing just a handful of situations that had happened in my single lifetime. And being groped on the dance floor is something that we come to expect or, uh, or not even consider to be assault. So... We've got a culture of um, teenagers who are learning something in one environment, but in their social lives, they're experiencing a completely different environment, which is informed by rape culture and pornography and all the rest of it. Two, two parallel universes existing on the same plane. It's like we want to feel like we're going to prepare our children and teenagers for things, but everybody is on either side of the situation thinking thanks for that but you don't know you don't know what my life is like and you don't know what being a kid's like and and as far as I can see it's no different than it was when I was a kid and I remember it really well mm-hmm. and that's you know and I find that interesting that you mentioned specifically that even the dance floor um example I think it's such a common place for it to start. That is one of the examples I lead with in my book. Have mm. you read any of it at all? I yet? haven't read it. No. Oh, I've looked at what's available on the Amazon. I haven't actually bought oh. a book or anything. So yeah. Yeah. That's mm. no, that's okay. I know we've just connected recently, but yeah, I'll just sort of add in like the first couple of examples I give from my own life are the same thing as it starts. It seems to start on the dance floor where, you know, people just come up behind you and start dancing with you and touching you. And that's just how it is. I'm doing your mm. quotes right now that um, we're sort of just expected to go along with. And what seems to be missing again is the communication piece. And 
teaching it before people get there. And you mentioned, you know, the two generations. I think it's not just planning on teaching our kids what we think they should know. It's relearning it for ourselves first Mm. before we teach the next generation. Because as you mentioned, there's so much we don't even know ourselves. And I didn't know um, so much when the couple of things happened in my life from Mm. the dance floor to, you know, someone who kissed me after a night out together with a group of friends. He walked me home and, um, you know, I said no, but I was giggling and laughing, trying to keep things light. Mm. And then he kissed me anyway. And I found myself in that moment, you know, finishing this kiss without making a big deal about it and then going into my house and thinking, you know, why didn't I slap him? Why didn't I push him off me? Why didn't I do all the things I imagined I'd do? Mm. And, you know, from that experience led to um, a situation with a supervisor who, you know, drove us to an abandoned parking lot after a dinner together and Mm. leaned in to kiss me and really was making it clear there wasn't really a no option. Um, and that in that moment, I, I didn't say no, I didn't, you know, again, fight, kick, hell, you know, jump into the car and run down, you know, I didn't do any of those things I imagined I would do. Yeah. And I was very confused by my behavior for, you know, several years until I did the research about, you know, what's in my Ted talk and what's in my book. Mm. And when I finally pulled apart all these missing pieces, I realized, you know, it helped me heal and it helped a lot of my clients heal. I've worked at both a college and a university with lots of students who'd gone through similar types of situations. And I sort of realized I had a bit of almost a duty to share it Mm. because it wasn't really being talked about. Yeah. And it was something I was able to put together through my career as a therapist and doing trauma work with people and then backtracking through my own life and then noticing that, you know, there's so many of these stories that happen that people react in ways they didn't expect and they don't know how to explain it. So they just mm. blame themselves. Mm. And when we sort of pull it apart, the metaphor, I think you referred to a bit earlier, this house diagram I have, it has three mm. floors, a top, middle and bottom. And the top is our safe floor. It's our mammal advanced um, part of our brain that, you know, we can have memory and language and forward thinking and planning and sense of identity and all of these things. And intimacy is what lives up in that floor. Yeah. And then the middle floor, and these are connected to parts of our brain and bodies. The middle floor is our sympathetic nervous system. It's our fight or flight. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, if anyone has gotten consent education thus far, it's usually goes about that far. And it says, you know, you're going to feel fight or flight and you need to run away or yell for help. And those are your fight or flight reactions. But that's the floor where so much more happens. And there's the freeze response. There's all the fawn responses, which are attend and befriend um, and appease. And... um, through all those different reactions, we actually have a whole set of de-escalation strategies. These de-escalation strategies help us stay safe in the long term. Mm. Short term, we suffer a trauma. Long term, we stay alive. Yep. And that is the part I'm sort of on a mission to teach is mm. that set of responses. Um, that's where education, I think, can help explain to ourselves what we do and why so we can help you know, interpret our own inner world 
Mm. and learn how to navigate through it so we can actually apply our boundaries and apply our strategies instead of getting lost in it. Where Mm. um, I think so much of the time we get lost in it and don't know why we're doing what we're doing and then we forget all our strategies and the moment's over and it's too late. It's like if that's how the brain works in those moments. So yeah, that informs consent and also how we look for consent in other people instead of just assuming if someone's being friendly or giggling or laughing, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not in distress. You have to know how to read mm-hmm. body language. You have to have communication. You have to, um, before all that, set up an environment of safety. Yeah, And that's really what it comes down to is we have to teach people how to help each other feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if it's a one-night stand, you've just met that night, or you've been together for you know weeks or months. Safety has to be part of any type of or style of relationship yeah so yeah that's sort of my my mission (laughs) yeah no I feel that on a in a lot of ways too when I started the podcast I was um, thinking about just the journey I've been on as a human being um, and and uh, getting to the bottom of my own personal childhood trauma and, and all that and learning about trauma response in children through doing some community service work and and stuff and just getting to that realization of how much of what any interaction is between human beings is completely and utterly subjective and how much we project on each other what we think the other person wants what we think the other person needs um and it feels like we are programmed, we're wired. It's, it's, a, it's a hard sort of blurred line I feel sometimes, but it feels like more programmed. We don't want to be thought bad of in any situation and we're taught to feel complimented if anybody takes an interest in us or finds us attractive in some way. And when we're young, we're taught to respect authority and all this sort of stuff and finding or learning about putting our own wants, needs, desires first and that being okay and being uncomfortable and being able to say to an adult regarding, regardless of who that adult is to actually say stop is a monumental undertaking for anybody, mm. anybody, for any grown woman, let alone a young person faced with someone imposing their will or desire or, or whatever on that person. And I'm particularly fascinated by this bottom floor, this dissociative part of the equation. And I think when we talk about being groped on the dance floor, I think when we talk about wolf whistling, all this sort of stuff, we we just grow up women particularly, I'm not trying to gender it too specifically, but we grow up with this feeling of responsibility for everything that everybody else feels and wants and desires. Mm -hmm. And we have a natural instinct towards pleasing people. Um, And what what actually happens in the brain or, or like it feels like we have literally no control over what we disassociate. For, or I don't even know the right, even the right way to pronounce it, but where we completely numify 
our reaction from what is taking place and go somewhere else in our minds or or whatever. It's a, something we are, we're mm-hmm. not even aware of and we might not even process that for years to come, whatever that may have been, whatever that situation may have been. Um, mm. So how do we get that across to people who are trying to teach consent to children? Like this, <laughs> yeah. this yeah, so feels the, like, yeah, feels like yeah, it feels like it's the first thing you should teach mm-hmm. or, or the way you should approach it is learning, learning who, how you feel, where your feelings come from and where your emotions come from and what that's about. How do we get yeah. there? And where do you feel them in your body and what does mm. it feel like when you feel that emotion? Because um, you can get maps of it in the body. Um, and, yeah, and starting it, you know, with children and and just to separate a little bit too, there's actually two conversations you're having there. Of One is um, around the socialization and the sort of appeasing responses, especially as women. And the other is the sort of dissociative bit. And they, they're related. Um, but let's just talk about first that, that piece around sort of, again, the socialization and those responses. Mm. Um, I have a second video. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that one, but it's on um, the second half of the metaphor. It's not in my consent book because um, that is sort of teaching more the skill-based and the the body and the responses. But there's another psychology thread to it that I work on with people that are, um, you know, coming in through counseling and we're doing trauma work together. And that is that this sort of second floor where those, there's in the image, um, there's sort of these book stacks and those represent our trauma memories that can get knocked over by these sort of little telescopes that look out the windows of the second floor Mm. that are always on guard. I just love it. I love, I just looked at it. I love the books. I love the, yeah, the everything about it and the, and the little stop sign people like I only learned about cognitive behavior therapy a few years ago when I needed to learn it. So this, this is great. Yeah. So this is Mm. pulling from, um, internal family systems and um, polyvagal theory and um, tying a little bit of EMDR, which is the trauma therapy into um, sort of the structure. Mm. And so those little bit of a stop sign, as you mentioned, so those, those stand in front of the book stack memories. So the book stack memories are in our subconscious, uh, they're in our amygdala. Um, we can't access them. They're not repressed, but they are living in a different part of our brain, the amygdala, which is the trauma center of our brain. And it is stored, more memory is stored very, very differently in that part than in the top floor of our brain, which is where the rest of our memory is. That's sort of mm. sequential and organized and um, just sort of normal. When we think about it, we, we're like, oh yeah, that happened. When we touch on a memory that lives in the amygdala, there's one golden way to know if it's something that you think about as a trauma memory or a regular memory. Now everyone thinks, you know, Oh, I don't have trauma. Oh, that only happens to these people. Only that's that's only these types of stories, right? With car accidents and war, and you know, um, survivors of of sexual assault and things like that. Yeah. But the truth is, everyone has trauma, and the, so the way you can tell which memories memories are what we call trauma because it's entirely subjective mm-hmm. um, is when you think about it today. Do you feel? emotions in your body still Mm. does it make you feel like you want to cry in that moment does it make you clench your fists and want to punch something does it turn your stomach does it make your heart start beating faster Mm. if you're getting any of those signals in your body that means the memories in the amygdala that means it's a trauma memory and then that means you develop in relationship to it 
something called a protector, which is a little part of our personality that shows up to try to stop that book stack from getting knocked over and sort of setting off the alarm in the whole system Mm. um, by these sort of telescopes watching out in our world all the time what um, is happening and what reminds us of these old feelings. Mm. So, you know, for many people growing up in households with critical parents, with parents who are, um, you know, arguing a lot themselves, um, where there's fights or tension a lot in the house. And this is, this isn't, you know, a minor group of the population. This is a lot of the population, right? Indeed. So anyone that's grown up in a household like that, you're going to have protectors. You're going to have trauma memories where you felt unsafe as a child. Mm. You didn't know how that fight was going to turn out. If one parent was going to walk away or leave or yell at you, or, you know, if you ever felt unsafe and it's it's entirely subjective. Yeah. So then that means we have, usually most of us have a people pleaser part of us. um, And especially women, because, you know, fawning, being submissive and getting through the experience in whatever way is going to keep everyone happy and make everyone get along so that, you know, we can still get dinner tonight when it really boils down to it. We need food and shelter and care. That's survival instincts coming up. Then this is often the set of responses that shows up when we get into similar situations of intimacy and consent Mm. in terms of don't make the other person angry. Don't make a scene. Don't, you know, make things worse than than it is. This is, you know, coming from now history of trauma stuff in our histories, whether we know it's there or not, it it is. And then it's also bringing along this other side of uh, our evolutionary wiring. It's down in our nervous systems and in our parts of our brain that pop it forward even more Mm. of freeze, appease, tend and befriend. Then, as you mentioned, the last option is if those don't seem to be working, then we're in that shutdown floor. That bottom floor of the house is the dissociative shutdown. Hide, wait till it's over, play dead, be as you know non-present as possible. Mm. And then there's a psychological fail-safe, which is really neat in our brain that actually keeps us, you know, alive and healthy after the fact. Is that either repression or splitting or dissociative, not really feeling attached to the memory um, mm. and numbness. Mm. So they're all adaptive when our bodies do these things. They keep us alive and functional, but unfortunately it also stays with us and it can affect how we both give and receive consent when we don't understand that these these things can come in to the moment. We don't Mm. know what to look for in our partners Mm. or in ourselves. Mm. Yeah, every time I have any of these conversations, I feel like... uh, (laughs) There's so many different tangents I want to I want to go off on, but I, for for the sake of clarity and also because you've got a life and you need to sleep and things, um, do you feel that the consent conversation as it is now, which is uh, yes means yes, enthusiastic consent, um, we're we're kind of leaning into. Uh, kind of like uh, not overkill but we're making sure that people um, at least take into account that someone is receptive when it's really obvious that they're receptive. People can seem enthusiastic even if they're confused or not. They just want to make the other person happy. How do we as 
human beings take accountability over what we do or don't want to engage in and mm-hmm. not just so from yeah for me yeah. I I really want to see the conversation around consent and the teaching around consent add the caveat ahead of the you know enthusiastic affirmative consent that first is safety yeah right that that you're not just you know jumping in and looking to see if consent's there and, and looking to see if it's enthusiastic and like okay I, I was taught to look for these certain signs and here I go I'm, I'm jumping in and I'm looking it's like well what happened before that mm. what happened before you got to that moment of trying to look for consent and that's the lead up is is so so important to being able to have that moment be authentic that the lead up has to be safety in terms of, you know, both the legal elements that we know in terms of power dynamics and age and, and intoxication levels and all that stuff, but also safety in terms of emotional safety. Did we, have we expressed to our partners that we encourage them to say no or to tell us if something doesn't feel right or good and that we will still, you know, be kind and respectful and, um, a safe person with them? Have we communicated that in words? Mm. You know, that's the emotional side. Socially, have we checked in that, you know, there are some obvious power dynamics like doctor and patient and teacher and student that we know about, but there can be so many social dynamics in a group of teenagers, in a group of young people Mm. that people need to consider, right? What type of pressure might a person feel in your presence? Are you someone who socially might be considered more powerful than the other person or sexually more experienced? Mm. And how can you take your perception and yourself in the room into account in a way that you can make the other person know that they're safe with you, Mm. despite any power dynamics that might be there? And then physically, right? So we need emotional, social, and physical safety. Physically, right? If you're in a locked room together, have you expressed to that person, have you checked in with them before you locked the door that that was okay with them? If you're standing between them and the door, have you, you know, checked that they're comfortable? Do you ask them even before you went into the room together, you know, do you want to go into this room together? Do you want to go somewhere else? Have you given multiple options to the person Mm. sometimes instead of just what you want to do? Mm. Right. And that sometimes verbalizing our multiple options we're okay with allows the other person to feel okay. They can pick one of them without making you angry. Right. It's like when you pick, can we watch this movie or this movie tonight? (laughs) You know, either one is really okay because the other person said it first. So if you're going to suggest, you know, hey, do you want to do this or this or this or nothing at all, right, you can throw that in there lightly and make the person realize that that is actually okay. And even though we know that and we're taught that and we know we can say no and all of those things, it it is often a piece around safety to hear that from our partners so that we don't have to go into this backlog of horrific news articles and videos and, you know, things we've seen in our lives of the person who it didn't work out for and this trial that didn't work out. You know what I mean? We have this load of information in our heads of when it doesn't work out. Mm. And I think that's always playing in the background. And I will say, especially for women and minorities and LGBT groups. Yeah. And culturally to, um, there's, uh, there's such vast differences in, in perceptions of, uh, what a, what a girl means when, (laughs) if she Mm -hmm. invites you in, 
some people think, well, if she invites you in, all bets are off. That's that's why she's inviting you in. And the idea that a conversation even needs to take place is to some people like why she's invited me in. Like there's there's a uh, the the whole rape culture perspective as well of of people saying, well, what did she expect in the case of your Harvey Weinstein's and all this sort of stuff? Well, what did she expect? What did she think would happen? And all this sort of stuff. Everybody wanting to excuse the power dynamic because there's this still basic misogyny around um, sex being something that women are obligated to give under certain circumstances <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's what we're for. That's why we exist. So, right. And yeah. there's that subtle undertone to it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have, yeah. uh, do you have much face to face contact with uh, teenagers and, and, and have the opportunity to um, get their feedback on how they're receiving what you're putting down, what you're, what you're telling them? Yeah. One of the things that, you know, really, I think made me feel again, that, that duty to move forward, that duty to, to, to get this out there is, is the feedback I've gotten from teens, especially around the house um, diagram. And, you know, even from a, just a counseling perspective, you know, when teens come in and they tell me, you know, I had a panic attack at school again today and I have no idea why. And it's, you know, or, you know, I was really sad and broke down into tears in my shower and, you know, for an hour and I have no idea why. Like there's these often actions, reactions and way we are, are existing in our bodies without understanding of, of the house we live in, of our, of our literal bodies and how we act and react and think when I talk to them about the house diagram and the different reactions we can have and it suddenly just clicks for them and they go, Oh, of course that makes sense. Right. Mm. The, 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 the cause and effect isn't always moment to moment. It's not like someone called you a name right there and you burst into tears. It was okay. If someone called you a name six years ago and, and this awful scenario and this circumstance and something triggered it just gently that remind, and this whole system comes online and it's understanding how, our bodies and our brains work. It's so empowering. And when I talk to teens then who are survivors and explain how their bodies reacted and why they reacted the way that they did and how they're meant to do it that way. And it wasn't their fault. The other person didn't um, check in with them or didn't ask or didn't set things up or didn't make them feel safe. It's Mm. so healing Mm. to hear that and to understand that. And that I think really needs to be shared because there's so many people living with this burden of confusion. And even sometimes when we say it's not your fault and you didn't do anything wrong and I believe you and these wonderful things and true things people need to hear without the deeper understanding as to why we sometimes still feel a little lost. Mm. It's like, I know it's true, but I don't know why. Mm. And so it's great to know it's true that it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong and, and all of those things, but to understand really how we work. Yeah. That's where the power comes from. Really intellectualizing it and just totally being objective about your own experience because we still, we like to take guilt on board (laughs) um, and shame and and all the rest of it, Um, particularly when it comes to intoxication and and that sort of thing. Um, So 
do you feel what's what's the feedback been so far or, or in regards to uh, you're able to uh, approach any schools, any uh, educational bodies with what you've got now? Are you getting any sort of feedback from that? So that is a bit of a can of worms. I'll try to keep it condensed, but um, what we're really running into in general is again, a systems problem and the education systems tend to be a very, you know, closed unit to create content and to put it into curriculum has, you know, 72 people it has to go through before it comes out or, or, you know, there has, there's this feeling that they have to create it themselves and put their own stamp on it to use other materials is a very uphill battle. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just a, you know, hi, government of Canada or government of US or, you know, government of Australia. It's, it's, um, it's not a, a broad system like that that says, oh, this is great. Let's put it through. It's hmm. you have to go through each individual school sometimes, depending on the state or province um, that you're in. Your yeah. school by school, principal by principal, superintendent by superintendent. And um, that is a lot. So my plea to anyone who's listening mm. right mm. now mm. is if you know someone in the school system, if you have any connections to people who care about consent, parents, networks, talk to them, watch my TED Talk, have a look at my book. I've put all this stuff together the feedback from people I, that have read it is incredible. It's really humbling to hear it, but it's also empowering for me to take their words and, you know, continue to press forward that this is the book we need in classrooms, in kids' hands. This TED Talk is one that should be in classrooms. And to, you know, if you're not sure, have a look at it yourself. Um, if there's any feedback, you can reach out to me. Um, but this is stuff that needs to get out there. And if we can all work together, um, I promise the world would be a different place. I mm. just, there's no way it couldn't. There's never been a time in history where education done right hasn't created some type of positive improvement. So yeah. we need to band together and and really, really get it out there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because it, it feels like with that, thing that thing that that video that came out the milkshake video it's like yeah you just can't even understand how they arrived at this being um a a really really good idea there's nothing universal about it in any way and it seems that it's changing the language for no good reason talking about this moving the line introducing a new phrase for consent or boundaries or things that are already in the vernacular, moving the line, they talk about the action zone and the the end zone and a football the, metaphor. Yeah, for, and it's and and the maybe if maybe you're really so. actually trying to use it as a consent metaphor too, you're actually not talking about moving the line. You're talking about sexual assault. Just yeah, I want to exactly, put that out there. Exactly. As, <laughs> soon like, as, as soon as you see the diagram do its thing and you see the line move from one end to the other, you're saying what I've just seen is a depiction of an assault. Yeah. 
regardless. And I understand if they're trying to talk about it in terms of healthy relationships, you know, that that might indicate a healthy relationship problem that, you know, someone's always bulldozing their opinion over yours. Mm -hmm. But if they are trying to teach consent and in terms of intimacy and use the same metaphor, it completely falls apart. And it's, and it's literally saying, you know, you might be sexually assaulted sometimes and that might be okay once, but not if it happens more than once. Like they literally say that line. Exactly. It was such a mixed everything. Um, and the idea of calling it as soon as I, I heard the word maybe, calling that the maybe zone, mm-hmm. I've had red flags going up everywhere. I couldn't even see straight because if it's the discussion zone or the communication zone, that's what it is, the conversation zone, the maybe zone. If you've got someone who wants something from someone else and they know that if they move that zone a little bit, they'll get a maybe it, mm-hmm. it, it, that's now coercion there and there's action terms and, coercion manipulation yeah. pressure I'm and like, what i'm you know <laughs> talking about is that lack of safety you now feel pressure as soon as you add pressure to a person you're starting to give that person indication their opinion doesn't matter and what yeah. they have to say isn't okay yeah and that automatically starts to trigger feelings of lack of safety and that depending also on a person's sensitivity level and past trauma history can sometimes immediately knock someone out into that second floor or even Mm -hmm. bottom floor. Mm -hmm. And now consent can't happen because a person's just trying to stay alive at the root of it. Mm. Right. I mean, it's just so off base if they were even thinking this could be a consent metaphor. Yeah. They were just telling people a little bit of assault's okay, but not a lot. (laughs) It's like, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wait until it gets so bad that you have to say something. That's, that's the message it it was and even then it was handled like that person withdrew first mm-hmm. like they mm-hmm. rather than speaking up the first impulse mm-hmm. was to withdraw and then mm-hmm. and then that person saying i'm going to need help overcoming my urge to smear you with milkshake like again mm-hmm. why is the victim being the one who has to make all the allowances for the abuser (laughs) Mm -hmm. so all of Mm -hmm. all of it's it's scary so I'm so I feel so very privileged that you had time to talk to me today my time tonight your time um Mm -hmm. because I was all at sea with that and didn't feel like I on my own could just have a big whinge about it because I feel like we're all whinging about it I I want to talk to someone who actually has a degree (laughs) and (laughs) understands psychology Um, because I I come at everything as an autodidact, a layperson and and someone who's had a lot of experience, positive and negative, which has its place. Wisdom has its place. But until I learned about what trauma response is, what rejection sensitivity is, what cognitive behaviour therapy, until I learned about these things relatively recently, to heal myself, things I did to heal myself. The first thing I thought of was everything, everything to do with emotions, everything to do with what it is to be a human being, primal emotions, uh, like telling people that what we are, the bodies and the minds that we inhabit are the way they are and we have to assimilate them to the world around us and, understanding understanding everything from the inside out but also empathizing and, and all of this stuff it's like 
by the time you get to a certain age, it's too late. It's too late to avoid being an abuser. It's too late to avoid being abused. And then it's damage control for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the things that I do see, you know, as a positive upswing of this debacle of a milkshake video of Mm. the fact that young people are leading the charge. And, you know, I've been talking to a few young people from Australia just through Instagram and stuff of um, different initiatives they're trying to start or or things that if I can offer a nugget of wisdom here or there um, or share some resources. And I just had a moment before we started chatting earlier today, I was putting baby to bed, was just sitting there and thinking, you know, how beautiful it could be that people could heal as young as they are in, you know, grades, high school Mm. grades, rather than having to wait till they're 30, 40, 50, 60. Yeah. Or to potentially not have to experience any of it at all. But even to just have the opportunity to know, to educate and to heal as young as they are, it just could change the trajectory of, of so many people's lives. So I'm, I'm hopeful that all this media attention and, and all of this, you know, discussion, people are paying attention. Maybe, fingers crossed, it's going to mm. really help change so many lives going forward. Well, maybe hope. it's a blessing in disguise that something came out that was so far off the mark that it got people like yourself and other people and myself and that who really, really, really care a lot but are maybe a little bit too polite to just get angry about it and have and have a um, a moment of not just, uh, oh, that's funny, that's a really funny thing, but uh, this is the wrong thing and here's why. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, I think, you know, that's that's my silver lining I keep thinking is, you know, d- despite all the lost money and time um, that went into the, um, you know, videos and stuff is that maybe, you know, consent got a second wind of attention and yeah. the more attention and, and time it gets, I think the more importance it's going to continue to take in people's minds and that to me you know, whether it's happening, whether it's going to happen in the school front and curriculum or not, I think it's at least starting more in in discussions amongst teens in, you know, the culture shifts every time there's a windfall like this. And Mm. um, for that, you know, I hope we get positive outcomes long-term. Yeah. There was a short-term, you know, fumbling of the ball here. Yeah. Because even watching that could traumatize someone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, the discussion that comes from it, you know, I hope will, you know, was validating, I think, to to see so many people rise up and say, this isn't okay, and here's why. And anyone mm. that did watch it or did feel like they weren't being validated or that their experience wasn't valid or that their understanding of consent and what's right and wrong isn't valid, I think they all got um, validated through through the response yeah. collectively. Yeah. So that's... Well, it's going to be my great pleasure to draw people's attention to your Instagram, to YouTube, all this, particularly because you're you're giving it away. Yeah, and yeah, and um, my course that you're referring to 
So I did, yeah, I first started as this like, oh, I'll do, you know, one of those things where people make a course and then people pay for it and that'll be a side hustle, blah, blah, blah. And the more I sat yeah. with that, the more I was just like, you know what, that's not me. That's not how I feel this particular cause. I might have a different course in the future that I do that with, but this consent, I was like, you know what, no, this this needs to be free and this needs to be available. And so I moved the whole thing off this um, web hosting paywall thing I had and I put it all free on YouTube so people could could have it. What, whatever resources are at the disposal, you know, if people feel inspired to, you know, I do have some worksheets that are available for purchase that they, you know, if people are feeling inspired to support my work. It's always, you know, nice, yeah. you know, to, to, to have some support in, you know, mm-hmm. doing what I do. But um, at the same time, I know there's a pandemic right now and not everyone has resources, but they should mm-hmm. still have access to the information. So I hope people do go out and look at it and use it and share it. And that's what I created it for. So, yeah, I did notice on that website, uh, the, the good place, whatever it's called. I even I even didn't like the word good being there. I'm just like, again. Oh, the good all, society? Yeah, I'm like, yeah. what is yeah. that? It sounds a bit uh, evangelical for me. Um, mm. They actually had a TED Talk uh, on their list of resources and it's the one, I've forgotten the name of the person, but they talk about the, um, the formula for falling in love, the eye gazing and the... Mm the list of questions that people can ask each other to establish intimacy. And it was, yeah. it was yeah, the journalists themselves took part in the exercise and ended up marrying the person that they went to this workshop with. So, um, but I think it's there to, uh, in some way, give a nod to the fact that it's scientific, the intimacy and eye contact and all this sort of stuff. It's a scientific reason why people do become emotionally attached and all this sort of stuff and I thought well that's that's not out of that's not entirely out of place so long as there's a lot of discussion around that particular talk to put it in a proper context for people because sex can be had under all different circumstances not just in a a relational or emotional one but um but yeah I'll be campaigning for your (laughs) talk to get on there somewhere um and yeah just thank you so much for doing that I would love to catch up with you again at some stage because I do on my really roundabout journey from started with orgasm and went through sexuality and gender identification and consent and now we've been talking about uh sexual assault and things as well but I do really want to talk about self-esteem and I know that's part of your part of your curriculum as well. Yeah, so, so that's my, my first book um, is called How to Like Yourself. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it certainly touches on, um, you know, self-esteem-ish. I actually, I prefer the term um, sort of holistically around self-compassion is yeah. sort of where I like to um, differentiate. And, and self-worth um, yeah. and self-worth as well, because I find that I, I talk about having a low self-worth because of, trauma and all that sort of stuff but I have very high self-esteem like I can get up in front of a room full of people and sing or whatever that's I feel okay about what I am capable of but what I'm worth in regards to love Mm -hmm. and commitment and all that sort of stuff that's where I struggle so Mm -hmm. and, and teaching teaching people about their intrinsic value just as a human being Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and self-worth um often 
Uh, so going back to even what we we're talking about earlier here of, of those protectors, mm. we get that inner critic protector mm. that often, you know, it's either downloaded from voices we've heard or been told or something that happened to us. Um, but sometimes it also sort of manifests inside ourselves to protect us from these sort of experiences from happening um, in the future as well. So that if, if someone's critical to us or, or hard on us or something bad has happened to us, that inner voice can shift. Um, and we have to remember we all have, we have these parts and these protectors. It's not our true voice. Mm. Our true voice is when we're in that top floor of the house and not in a protective part. And those protectors are the ones that chime in and say, um, you know, you're no good or you're not worth anything or you're whatever mm. to try to sort of beat, beat life to the punch. If we can stay low, we have not as far to fall. Yeah. So it sort of keeps us down and, and that is a way long-term again to keep us from, you know, having, you know, especially thinking of growing up in a, a toxic environment if you're constantly exposed to something unsafe or not okay, um, or you have that uncertain environment, you never know when it's going to come or when it's going to happen, then um, this little protector can sort of keep you on that low trajectory so that when it does come, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it hurts as much. Now, that, of course, is a short-term strategy that can, gets applied across a lifetime, and then it hurts a lot, mm. right? Short-term doesn't hurt, protects, long-term hurts a whole heck of a ton. Mm. And um, that's where the healing comes in is to go in and, and clear out those book stacks on the second floor and heal the amygdala and uh, release those memories. And, and my favorite therapy for that is EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah, I've and heard of it. Yeah, I was, oh, on, the, I was on the verge. It. I was on the verge of thinking I might need it a few years ago, but I do it. Uh, <laughs> ooh, do okay. it. I, I, it just even if you want to do it as an experiment, whatever. But mm. I, it's it is something I've done and mm. something I'm trained in, and I, I do with my clients. And the difference is huge. It is something that's been able to reach clients that you know through general CBT and, and talk therapy and other approaches. Um, you know, we've done a lot of amazing work. There's still, you know, great things about those types of therapies, but there's this level that they can't get to mm. that there's this trauma memory stuff because the amygdala blocks when we're in session um, a lot of the time. And when we get into this reprocessing way, it's actually what happens while we're asleep and we're sort of processing most memories during our REM sleep. It's sort of mimicking that same way of processing and allowing those memories to be released and go back up to the regular parts of our memories in our prefrontal cortex and our language systems and release from that emotional center um, of the body. And um, you can tell the difference. Like you, you probably have, and you don't have to do it right now, but if you have a memory that you know when you normally think about it, you get that twist in your stomach, your throat closes up, or you feel your body respond it gives you the ability to think of that memory and you don't forget it, but your body stays calm. Wow. And it's magical. Mm. And I, I highly recommend trying it if you yeah. haven't. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds very, very tempting. And I know that obviously there's expense in that involved, but emotionally I sometimes think the thing that holds you back from doing things like that is your, your, 
your responses have become a safety blanket for so long, your security blanket. And you think, if I let go of my triggers, what's going to protect me? You know, it's almost that, like the anxiety feels like you're alive or, or something. And if you if you let go of your anxiety, you 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 won't you won't know yourself. <laughs> Well, there is. And that's something in the process we talk about. It's called secondary gains, which is, okay, you, you gain um, the release of trauma, but what comes with it are these secondary gains, which aren't always um, perceived to the self initially as positive. They're scary. There's shifts in identity, shifts in way of being, shifts in blocks that we became very used to. And so you have to process that a little bit before you do the therapy itself of, what that could mean and sort of getting your system ready and all these different parts and protectors inside you ready to allow a system change. Um, Mm. So there's lots of parts that sort of get you ready for that before doing it. um, Mm. That, that then can make it a little less scary once you're, once you're in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, yeah, we're, it's like I could I could go on and on, but I don't want to keep you very long because yeah, it's it's quite late where you are. But um, I'll definitely stay in touch and hopefully um, get around to doing something that is more specifically around um, uh, trauma mm-hmm. recovery, just how mm-hmm. the brain how the brain lets go of these things, or how you can mm-hmm. train your brain to let go of these things. So. Well, I'm, I am glad we touched on a little bit at the end of this one, yeah. um, though, because a lot of folks who might listen to this um, chat we've had tonight is um, a lot of them might be survivors. And yeah. um, I hope anyone who is listening right now that, you know, has been thinking or, you know, resonated with any of those explanations around where you feel it in your body and trauma memories and the amygdala and stuff um, to maybe do a little research into EMDR mm. and, you know, I obviously can't say it's the med cure-all for everyone, but, you know, I've found high, high success with lots and lots of people. And there's very few limitations. Um, there are some, but few limitations on, on who it can be effective for. Mm. So, you know, I would highly recommend people do a bit of research. There's a book called Getting Past Your Past by um, Francine Shapiro, who's the creator of EMDR. And um, also to watch that video, it's in my Instagram um, link in my bio. There's uh, one of my YouTube videos is the one I've referred to through here. Discussion today was the survival house video. Yeah. And um, I think the tag on it is, um, do you overreact and don't know why? Yeah, that's and that's what I was watching while I was waiting for you to put baby to bed. Yeah, so yeah, that's, yeah, it's that's great. one of my favorites. So mm. yeah, watching that, looking into the MDR and hopefully folks who are listening might find some healing through um, some of those things, if mm. that's something they're looking for in their life. Yeah. I think sometimes people fight certain notions the hardest just before capitulating to understanding it or, or agreeing to something um, because it is bringing up something for them, something that they don't want to think about or don't want to remember or, or you know, or don't want to mm. identify with. Well, again, remember those are the strategies that, those are the strategies that kept people alive for mm years that's Mm. those are the strategies that get people functional so to have the system think about releasing them before the trauma is released is counterintuitive we don't want to release the strategies before we've healed the trauma but we have to to heal the trauma so it ends up being a bit of a negotiation internally so um the work is hard i won't sit here and say it was easy i i personally bawled my eyes during all my emdr sessions until i had a little 
ball of Kleenex, you know, on my lap by the end, but that's me. Um, not everyone has that experience, but it tends to be an intense therapy, but it's, Sounds you great, know. actually. <laughs> the, the, the idea of any excuse to cry always because it's not easy for me to cry. It, it'd be great mm-hmm. if there was a, I have to play a certain song to make me cry sometimes. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's just so cathartic and 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 all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, an account that I follow on Instagram as well. Um, his name is Todd Barrett's. It's your diagnosis. And he quite often debunks a lot of pathologizing of what we, what modern sort of psychologists or or, or insta therapists will talk about mm-hmm. uh, topics such as gaslighting and toxic people and all this sort of thing, and that kind of has its place. But almost everything in psychology is a reaction to something. It's mm-hmm. it's and. And it's speak to being human. And no one thinks they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. And this is the thing. You know, I've never once had someone come into my office in counseling and been like, you know what? I am the asshole. I'm wrong. I'm doing <laughs> yeah. this on purpose to make someone else's life miserable. Like that is, yeah. everyone has a way of seeing the world that makes sense to them based on their trauma history and their way of coping and their survival strategies. And, you know, short of a f- small number of the population you know, that may fit into mm. a diagnostic sociopathic yeah. profile. The rest of us are just reactive to honestly, mostly our traumas. Mm. And if I could make one change in the world, it would be that every single person had access to trauma therapy starting in grades seven, eight or nine. And yeah. That would be. I think we'd see a very different world if if that was. Oh, I absolutely a hundred percent agree with you. It's like you either you either believe uh, you're not aware that you're the asshole, but or the other the inverse side to that is that um, you don't believe that anybody else is an asshole. You think you're the, you're the one to blame for everything. So there's those two mm-hmm. sort of things fighting against each other mm-hmm. at any given moment, but. But we're that accountability thing is is great. It feels good <laughs> to really not give other people their accountability and take your own on board as well and go, wow, we all we all fuck up all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think there's stages of healing too, right? Mm. That that's different levels of our awareness in our own healing process will be where we connect with different levels of explanations. Um, and so I think these things have their place and as we evolve and as we keep moving through the work and our own healing, we get to different, um, ways of seeing things and seeing the world. And yeah, I think it's all, it's all very powerful stuff. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I really appreciate you having me and chatting about everything. Um, <laughs> it's been fantastic and <laughs> I feel you know, terrible really got, because, because it was, so, it was so spontaneous and, and while I was waiting to talk to you, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've got so much I want to talk to her. How do I keep it concise and whatever? But um, but at the same time, I don't like to write a list of questions. I like to have that organic in the moment light bulb go off because I'm the I'm the blank slate. I want you to tell me things <laughs> and me to go, oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And I have other people listening thinking the same thing, but mm-hmm. But the the big reaction to um, this thing, it's 
I'm so happy. Like I I did want to be the only person or have a bunch of people sort of go, that's a ridiculous thing that we, we're expecting to pass. Universally, everybody just went, no, please, no, no, this is wrong, this is wrong. So there's hope. Mm-hmm. There's hope out there. There's after hope. All. Yeah. I think there is. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me and we'll, uh, we'll follow up on Instagram, I'm sure. And thanks everyone who's, uh, you know, tuning in and listening and following along as well. Get a good night's sleep, plenty of fluids. <laughs> Pamper yourself. So awesome. Bye. Okay. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. What a full on all encompassing conversation. Thank you, Cheryl, for talking me off the ledge because at the beginning of the conversation, I was seething with anger and frustration and we ended up sifting through it all and coming up with some really interesting points and I'm so glad we managed to cover all the territory that we did. I am going to put references to books and Cheryl's links in the show notes. Have a look for those. I also think it's pertinent as well to pop in an Amanda Palmer song uh there's a youtube out there uh she through her patreon funded a fantastic film clip to this song which she collaborated on it's called mr weinstein will see you now it talks about the power imbalance and it talks about dropping to the bottom floor it talks about dissociating and it does so with such vivid imagery And I give you a content advisory warning in regards to watching it, but I do encourage people to watch it because it does touch on the sexual assault that happens because of a capitulation, whether it's a a voluntary capitulation from coercion or power dynamics or a subconscious shutting down uh, that the brain does. Um, and these are the conversations we need to have and the artists who understand and can go there, like Amanda, go there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm going to pop that uh, YouTube link in there as well. Speaking of YouTube links, a big digression away from the seriousness of this conversation A couple of podcasts ago, I told you that I was working on a song. The song is done. It's been uploaded to a distribution website and the date is set for that song to hit Spotify and iTunes and all the other music programs as well as a clip that I made is also going to come live um, on YouTube on May 9, which is Mother's Day in Australia. Um, This is a major milestone for me. I've been writing songs only for about seven years and I haven't written a lot of songs. I've been busy (laughs) having the life experiences that made me write songs and uh, I sort of touched on it in that conversation with Cheryl in regards to healing and recovering from traumatic events in my life. Um, And, yeah, I came out with a song. 
I have a blog post on theeloquentintheroom.com that does explain or describe how the song came into being. Um, I did wake up with the idea for it and the lyrics came really easily and it took a bit of coordinating timetable-wise and um, energetically uh, for my son and I to collaborate on the song. I knew the song was bigger than just me uh, playing a few strums on the ukulele, which is what I did with my other songs and performed it at open mics and things. Um, yeah, I, I felt like it was a real decent song with a big, oh, <laughs> very ambitious message on my part. Um, and I decided that I was going to own it and put myself out there with it. And I did that. We recorded it. We recorded layers and layers of vocals. And I had the awesome experience of listening to the track that he uh, created and played on as the backing track to the vocals and hearing that in headphones while I sang into a mic. And it was exhilarating. It was uh, the biggest bucket list tick. Um, so that's happening and uh, for the last six weeks or so or longer I've been uh, filming bits and pieces and editing them together and Riley's been sort of looking over my shoulder and sort of giving me some uh, tips here and there about um, you know what he felt was missing and so he was my creative consultant but I made it, I filmed it, I edited it, I added special effects, I used filters from Instagram and all that sort of jazz, but, you know, uh, and the program that I used, um, Movavi, and I'm so fucking proud of it, proud of myself for doing it, starting a thing, saying I was going to do it, and fucking doing it, and finishing it, so that's coming out on May 9. The next podcast is due to come out a few days after that. I've been talking about consent and sexual assault for these last few weeks and I feel like I need to shift gears, uh, think about promoting the song, think about playing some more music and uh, recording some more music, think about trying to make money. <laughs> I'm not making any money at the moment, which is sad. Um, so I need to become more enterprising. I've been doing the podcast for over a year. I've been doing social media stuff for the same amount of time and put a lot of hours and energy into doing all this stuff. So now I have to figure out whether or not I should do a Patreon or God knows, I don't know. It's A lot of it is owning what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, so I need to go into the room of mirrors, give myself a big talking to um, and push forward. So Releasing the song and um, seeing what the reaction is going to be to that song is going to be the fuel I need to propel me forward uh, and see what directions I go in next. I want to make more short filmy kind of things and pop them onto YouTube. And Creatively, I'm growing at a really interesting stage of my life to be growing creatively, but you know, you take what you can get when it comes to you. So this is my way of saying, I don't know where, what direction I'm going in next. It'll be a surprise. It'll either come out 
on the due time in two weeks from now or it might come out a little bit later than that. I really am looking at uh, the next part or the next direction of the podcast to move forward in the direction that it started in, which was me hunkering down and writing and researching and putting together episodes that also had beginning, middle and endings um, and painstakingly written and recited um, in order to tell a story and be entertaining and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I've got a lot of thinking to do, guys, cats and kittens, guys and gals and non-binary pals, I don't know. I still say guys. I apologise if anyone's offended by me. Still considering the collective noun of human beings to be guys. Um, It's a habit I may or may not break. I don't know. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, please like, share uh, the podcast. This particular podcast I think is definitely one that should be shared. Um, So, yeah, I'm doing my bit. Cheryl's doing her bit. It would be awesome if you would also do your bit and um, share what you have learned listening to this one. I'm inspired. I'm inspired very much by what Cheryl has said and I am looking forward to chatting to her again. And, yeah, guys, people, everybody, Oh, that's the name of my song, (laughs) Everybody. Isn't that interesting? I didn't call it guys, did I? Called it Everybody. There you go, Rose. Just That's the collective noun, Everybody. So, yeah, Everybody is coming out on May 9. Have a listen. And if you like it, share it. (laughs) Add it to your playlists. Um, Yeah. Give me feedback. Give me a pat on the back. Don't laugh at me, please. Oh, putting it out on the line for you guys, putting it out on the line for anybody who thinks it's too late to express yourself and do a big thing to express yourself creatively, to leave your mark, to take a stand. Um, That's what the song is. It's a protest song. So, yeah. Freeforming, stream of consciousness, close to this particular podcast because why the fuck not treat yourselves well have self-compassion give the people in your life a hug i love you all very much thanks for listening and i'll talk to you soon